hands together. Come on, give him a shout if you believe that he is more than able. It doesn't matter what you're dealing with. Who are we to deny what our God can do? Give him a shout of praise. Come on. Genesis chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This is Abram. Saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside, and he said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6, Then, then he believed in the Lord. And he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Sometimes belief takes time. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans, man, oh man, to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all of these to him and he cut them in two and he laid each of them halves opposite to the other. But he did not cut the birds. I'm going to skip over. I'm going to read verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in this land, that it's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, but I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. Verse 15, I know it's a lot. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Heavenly Father, we're just asking right now that you would continue to allow your presence to be here with us and that you would speak to us. We can feel you. We know that you are here. And we're asking right now that your word would be the kind of word that would impact us, change us, and give us hope. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Put your hands together. Before you sit down, before you sit down, I want you to give my title to the person next to you. Tell them this is this sermon. Say, say neighbor. This sermon is promised land proof. Promised land proof. Give them a high five and sit down promised land proof.
I realized something about four days ago as the summer was starting to really take root in my household. It was something that was surprising to me, but really what it was, it was, it was shocking more than surprising. And it was uh, a little overwhelming, discouraging, all of the emotions wrapped into one. And I'll tell you, um, I had a hard time recovering from this. And I'll tell you what it was. It's that my kids eat up all the food in like two days. Any parents know what I'm talking about? Your, parent, your, your kids are home now, and they're bored, so they eat everything in sight. And what used to cost you like $100, now it's costing you $300 because they're always eating. Listen, did you, I, I told my kids this week because I had gone to the store on Monday, and by Tuesday night, they were all coming to me saying there was no food left. And I got up and I said, now I know I went, now I sounded like my parents sounded, and it kind of it hit me really difficult because I said, I can't believe I sound like my parents, but I got to roll with it. I said, I just went to the store yesterday. And I could be eating up all this food. In one day, do you eat five meals a day at school? No, you don't. That ain't going to be happening here in this house either. You eat lunch, and you eat dinner. That's it. They all looked at me, just, okay, we get it. I went to the store, I got back with bunches of food and put it all up. And you know, I had my doubt. I did. I did not believe that it would last. I'll tell you why. Because that night, I know that I bought some crackers that I wanted to eat. I even hid these crackers behind other crackers that I knew my kids don't want to eat so that they wouldn't see the crackers that I set aside for me. They're the Ritz original thin, little thin crackers. They're so good. So I go, and it's about 11 o'clock at night, and I'm going, and I'm rummaging, and I'm looking for these crackers, and they're gone. I know where I put them, and they're not there. I remember in the back of my mind that my son Ezra said that he loved those crackers. Now, it's 11 o'clock at night, it's summertime, these kids are awake, and so I just walk down the hall with a purpose. I know he has my crackers, it's a brand new bag, there's no way he's ate them all. Maybe I can salvage some of them. Kick down their door, poof. Yo, because when you have boys, you talk to them different than when you have little girls. I said, yo, what are y'all doing? Have you ever... <laughs> If you ever grew up in the ghetto, you know what it's like for your parents to come in and look around. Like, you got, like if you got a, a friend that has spidey powers and they're hanging on the ceiling somewhere, looking around, seeing if everything's intact, that's, that's how you know. You're in an ethnic home. And I'm looking around, moving the door, what y'all got hiding back here? Ezra starts fumbling things around, he's hiding something. Hey, what you got there? Nothing. Nah, 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 nah making my way through the socks and the shoes and the stankness of little boys. And I was just like, oh, kind of the cloud just hit me. And I'm like, hey, I know you didn't eat my crackers. He said, face full of crumbs. What crackers? 
Now I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt. You're lying to me. I'm trying to, listen, did you eat my crackers? Ezra is like his dad. He's really good at convincing you of other things. He looked at me and goes, no. Crumbs falling from his face. No shame at all. He knew. I said, listen, man, I'm going to give you a chance. Where are my crackers? I don't know where your crackers are, Dad. I didn't eat them. Then he does what every brother does. He blames it on someone else. He said, maybe Elena ate them. He knows I'm not going to go yell at Elena. He thinks I'm just going to drop it. I said, listen, I doubt it. I doubt she ate them. He goes, why? I said, I doubt it because I see the proof all over your face. And the bag of crackers is peeking up out of your blankets. I have proof. I don't doubt that you ate them because I have proof. Puts down his phone. Not his phone, his little electronics. And okay, and gives me the bag, fluffs it up a little bit. It's all, you know, kids, when they open things, it's all open and it's, it's awful. And he hands it back to me, it's empty. Literally, one or two little crackers in there. So frustrated, but I realized some at that point. I was reading this text and I was dealing with what to be able to use describe to you what's happening in this text. I thought of this interaction with Ezra because I, w I was in doubt. When he told me it was my daughter, I said, I doubt it. I, I don't believe you. I doubt it because I, I see proof. As we get into this text in Genesis 15, we meet a man who doubts. We meet Abram after all of these great things that he has done with God and has he seen God work. He is here and he's in doubt and he's asking God for proof. Because what he is believing God for is unbelievable. The promise that God has for him he can't really believe that God would do that for him. Maybe you know what it's like to look at God's word, read about his promises, remember the things that you feel God has told you about the promises for your life, and you have some doubt. You have some doubt because you know that maybe, maybe you've struggled so much so that you don't believe God would do that for you. And so maybe like me telling my son Ezra that I have doubt, maybe you're also saying I need proof. Have you ever gotten to that place where you said, if God's really going to do that for me, I need proof. Abram is here in Genesis chapter 15, leaving chapter 14 where he saw God do something incredible by taking his 318 men and helping Abram win a battle against four large, powerful kings. 
God worked a miracle for Abram in chapter 14, and, and Abram was so proud and, and so, so trusting of his God that at this moment in chapter 14, he is no longer the same. The Abram that we knew in chapter 12 was a coward, and he was afraid, and he wouldn't take risks. And now in chapter 14, he's, he's a man that believes in God's ability, so he takes risks, and God gives him great victory. And the Bible tells us at the end of chapter 14 that the king of Sodom comes up to Abram after all of that and says, hey, Abram, because you helped us win this battle, I'm going to give you the wealth and everything that is in the four cities that we beat. He tells Abram, essentially, I'm going to give you the opportunity to be a king over four cities, four powerful cities. And these four cities, they represented the four corners of the world. So this king is giving Abram all of this power, power and riches over the four corners of the world. Now, Abram has heard a promise from God telling him that God was going to give him land and authority and power and descendants. And Abram hears this king offer him this ability to be a king. And Abram says no. He says no because he did not want to be known as the man who the king blessed. He wanted to be known as the man who God blessed. And he believed that the promise of God was greater than the promise of this king. So he said, I'm not I'm not wavering from my belief that God has something great for me, and I'm not compromising the promise that God has for me by accepting this offer from this king, because God has more for me. God has something incredible, and it's more than I can imagine. And so the Bible says that he didn't compromise the promise for profit of that day. He could have had the money from all of these cities, and he said no. Because I trust God to do more for me. And now we meet Abram in chapter 15. We don't know how much time has passed right now, but it's fairly recent after this because when we meet Abram, he's afraid. He's afraid. And he's afraid because in those days it was very common for a king to retaliate. For a king and a nation, once they were attacked, to retaliate and to come back and fight again. They didn't just take defeat once. And maybe you know what it's like to deal with problems that keep coming back and keep coming back. And you thought you dealt with them and they keep coming back. That's what Abram is afraid of. Abram's like, I had this victory. I think I'm secure, but I'm afraid that it's going to come back. And maybe you're like me and you know what it's like to have victories and then still have this fear that the victory isn't complete. That I might have beat it today, but what if tomorrow the addiction comes back? That today I feel strong, but what if tomorrow something happens and I can't handle this anymore? This week was a good week, but next week, oh man, I don't know. That's what Abram is dealing with, and the Bible says he's afraid, and we can determine that he's afraid for his life because he's feeling in this moment so much fear that God has to speak to him and remind him of how good and how faithful he is. It says this in verse 1, after these things, what things? The, the war. The victory, Abram turning down what, what, the, what the king offered him. The Bible says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, I need you to understand this. God 
God would speak to his people in these days three different ways, through visions, through dreams, and through personal encounters. So here is God giving him a, a vision, and I want you to see this really quickly. We're going to run through this scripture, but I want you to understand it. The Bible says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Now, it came to Abram, that wording right there, it came to Abram, was only used for prophets. Was only used for prophets. Normal people did not have this kind of wording attached to them in a connection with God. And the word of God came to Abram. It was reserved for prophets only. And yet, here is Abram, and God is coming to him in an unconventional way, trying to give him encouragement for what's to come. I love that because I think that some of us, we like to put God in a box in the way that he would communicate to us, and the way that he would speak to us, and the way that he would talk to us. And here is showing us that you may think that God's going to come and speak to you one way. He's probably going to come and do it a very different way because he's got more that he wants to do for you and it's going to take a different way of communication. To me, that encourages me because I'm always wanting to work, see God work one way to tell me that he's going to do something, and now this gives me faith that if it doesn't come this way, it doesn't mean he's not going to speak to me. Come on, for everyone in here who's dying to hear from God, and you're wondering how long is it going to take, and you're wondering why your prayers haven't been answered, and you're wondering when the doctor's going to say that he's got a cure, and you're wondering when you're going to find answers at work, and you're going to find hope in the struggles that you have. The Bible is telling us that God speaks in ways that maybe you're not ready for, but he speaks anyway. It says, the word of the Lord came to Abram, and here's God, and he's speaking. Every time God speaks, just highlight it, because here's God's words to man. He says, Abram, do not fear Abram. That is proof to you and me that Abram's afraid. I find it interesting that Abram is afraid after he just beat these kings. I find it interesting that Abram's afraid after He's seen God do what God has done for him. God has worked and moved and done incredible things, and yet Abram is afraid. And this, to me, helps me to not feel so alone in, in my world whenever I know and I see God move, and yet I still feel fear. And maybe you know what it's like to wrestle with faith and fear. Maybe you know what it's like to wrestle with having faith that God will do great things, and yet the very next day, wrestling with faith that maybe he won't do it again. That maybe God won't show up this time. Abram, after seeing God do so many great things, is afraid. And I think there are so many of us who are afraid. We're afraid God's gonna, not going to hear our prayers. We're afraid God's not going to answer us. We're afraid God's not going to help us get out of the situation that we're in. We're afraid we're going to stay single forever. We're afraid we're never going to have children. We're afraid we're never going to have answers. We're afraid we're never going to find joy. Even though we've seen God work. Am I talking to anybody in here or is it just me? Even though we've seen God work, even though we've seen God do things, have you ever been afraid? That's you. This, this passage is for you. It says, do not fear Abram, he's afraid of retaliation, and God said, I am a shield to you. 
you need to shield Abram, and that's who I am. I am a shield to you. I love that it says that he's a shield. Why is this important for you and me, for those of us who are pursuing the promises that God has for us? The interesting thing about a shield is a shield does not promise you that you will not face attacks. A shield is a promise of defense against attacks. And it's at this point that God could have said, don't fear, Abram, I am your escape from problems. Don't fear, Abram, I am your way out of horrible situations and pressure and struggle. But God doesn't say that. Instead, God says, do not fear, Abram, I am a shield to you. I am a protection to you. There will be attacks. You will have trouble. You will face struggles. And in those moments, you can have confidence in this, that I am protecting you. You can have confidence in your life, he's teaching us here, that attacks are not evidence that God is not with you. I know that you feel like because of the attacks that you are facing in your life, God must not be with me. I deal with it all the time. I am attacked every day. Every single day I deal with fights. Every single day I deal with the enemy. And I can slip into moments where I feel like this attack must mean that God is not with me. And yet this scripture tells me that the fact that we have attacks does not determine the presence of God. Here's what determines that we, that we are still in the presence of God, that he is with us and hasn't left us. You're still standing. You're still alive. You still got breath in your lungs. You woke up this morning. Come on, it might have been difficult yesterday. You might have woke up to a difficult email and a phone call and a diagnosis, but the Bible says if you're still alive, it means you got a shield. You got a shield. Here's Abram, and God is saying, I'm not promising you that attacks won't come. I know you're afraid of the enemy. Be prepared for their attacks with this, that I'm with you. That I'm with you. God is saying, stop being afraid. In the midst of your attacks, you can have courage. I need you to understand, Abram, that the attacks will happen, but I am your great protection. I am your, a shield is a deflection. It's a deflection, meaning the attacks of the enemy won't get to you, but the attacks of the enemy are still coming. God promised that he himself would be the perfect protection and the only reward that Abram would ever need. I am a shield to you, and you need to be encouraged to say that God is your shield. You need to be encouraged to say that no matter what people say about you, no matter what attacks come over you, you are protected by God himself. He is your shield. He is your protection. He is your deflection. He says, I am a shield to you. Your reward 
shall be very great. Don't get it twisted. God is saying, because of what you did in chapter 14, because of what you've done in chapter 13, the faith that you've had, I got a reward for you. Notice, this is not a gift. It's a reward. A reward is something that comes from some kind of interaction, some kind of exchange. Because you did this, here is this. God is telling Abram, the promise that I have for you is a reward. And here's what you need to understand about the reward that God has for you. It comes tied with your actions. Your actions help determine whether or not you get to experience the promise that God has for you. And maybe you think that God has these promises and you're not seeing them work out. Have you been obedient? Have you been obedient to him? Because these promises are rewards. They're not gifts, rewards. God has great gifts that he gives us. The one most specific gift is salvation that he freely gives to you and me. That is for us. There is no, no strings attached to that. He gives us salvation. And that gets us into the kingdom of God. But we live on this earth, and I think that we need something for this earth to make it through with the problems that we face and the struggles that we have. And if you're on this earth, God has a reward system for you here on this earth so that while you go through this life, as you go through the struggle, you can depend on your God who will reward you because you're obedient. The Bible says, I have a reward and it shall be very great. It shall be very good. Abram says, oh Lord, what will you give me? Abram immediately shows us his doubt. Oh Lord, and actually this, this word here, oh Lord God, is a new title for God. When we met God in chapter 14, we met God El Elyon, the most high God. And, and, and before that, we met the God Yahweh who is the most strong God. And now we meet a different God. Abram says, oh Lord God, Adonai. Abram is telling God by invoking this name of God, Adonai, that he believes that God is his master. That's what Adonai means, sovereign master. So we meet three different attributes of God found in his name. One, that he's the most strong. Two, that he is the most high. And three, that he is our master. Abram says, look, things aren't looking good for me. I'm struggling, I'm afraid, I don't know what to do next. I'm having this anxiety and this fear of retaliation from these kings, and if these kings attack me, how am I gonna keep this land? And if these kings attack me, I only beat them once, I don't know that I can do it again, but I'm trusting you as my master. And what if God is trying to teach us just with this word that the moments in our life where we face the most opposition, we have to return to the battle lines understanding that God called us to this, that he placed us in this fight, that he called us to this land, that he made us a promise so we're not afraid because he's our master and he's commanded us to do this. And if we could just understand that God has commands for us and desires for us, then maybe we'd find the courage to go forward and do what God has for us. Here is Abram, and he says, oh, Adonai, my God, what will 
you give me. He's, he's asking God a question. And I love it because I know that you got questions for God. I know that you doubt sometimes. And I know that you got moments in your life where you just feel like, I don't know that God can come through. So here's Abram, and he's expressing some of his doubt. He says, what will you give me? Because I ain't got no children. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, who is, who is this and why is this important? Eliezer of Damascus is just his servant. Everything that I own is going to go to this man who's not even from my blood. And didn't you make me a promise that I would have descendants that would be numerous and that would outnumber the dust of the earth? I haven't seen it yet. There's a little bit of frustration in Abram's words here because he said, hey, God, you've made this promise to me. You've given me these words, and I've done what you've asked me to do, but I haven't seen you fulfill your end of the deal. I haven't seen a child. And so he's asking God, hey, wait a minute, okay, I, I get it. You would think that Abram would be on his face worshiping this God in this vision. But no, he's like, no, 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 I have questions. Maybe you have questions. Maybe you're in a place where you're saying, hey, you know what, God? I've worked hard. I've listened to your words. I've, I've stood strong in the test of trials. I faced enemies. I stepped out in faith. I believe your promises, but where are they? I need to see them now. Have you ever been in a moment you said, God, I don't need it tomorrow. I need it right now. Right now. I was dealing with that this week. God, I don't need to see it in three days. God, I don't need to see your answers in five days. I need to see it today. And I had to take, take, take a moment and reflect on this scripture and trust that in these moments where you want to see God do something today, God doesn't say, you know what, you of little faith, be gone. I don't want anything to do with you. It's in these moments that God shows us his patience with us. It's in these moments that God shows us how much he cares for us. And it's in these moments that God understands that we are human and we have needs and we struggle with doubt. And he welcomes us even though we have doubt. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. The kind of church that's open for people with doubts and with questions and with fears. Because God himself shows us through this scripture that he welcomes these people. People with doubt. People with fear. And here's Abram and he says, I don't even have have a child. Verse 3, Abram said, since you have given me, notice, he is, he is calling God out. This is a problem, God, because you have not given me offspring. You have not given me somebody born in my house to be my heir. He says, God, I have doubts. More importantly, I have doubts about you, God. Have you ever been there? God, I have doubts, and I've, I specifically have doubts about you and what you want to do for me. And if you look even deeper in the text, understand what Abram is saying. He's saying to him, you have not given me a child, meaning I'm too old to have kids, and for this to actually happen, I need a miracle. And he's saying, I don't just doubt you, 
Man, I doubt me. I'm too old. Abram is doubting God, and he's doubting himself. He's doubting himself and his ability to be able to perform the way God wants him to perform, if you know what I'm saying. Abram is 75 years old, and he said, God, I, can't, I just can't do it. Have you ever been in a place where you said, I, I, I don't, God, it's not that I don't trust you, I don't trust me. God, it's not that I don't trust you, I don't trust my ability, I don't trust my, my strength. Have you ever been in that place where you say, God, I know, my, I know my body, I know me, I know my heart, I know my soul. Have you ever been in that place? Or you said, man, as much as I, I believe you, God, like, man, I'm a failure. Man, I make the same mistakes over and over again. Man, I struggle with the same struggles. He's admitting that he is unable in his mind to complete the task. Listen, for all of you who are doubting your ability to move forward, this, this text is so important for you. For all of you who doubt your ability to, to do your part in God's promise, this text is life-giving. For all of you who want to give up because you don't believe that you'll be able to do it, that you don't have it in you, meet Abram. The man that the book of Hebrews says is the father of faith. But he's doubting himself. It says, verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Here we go. Two times. Now the word of the Lord comes to him again. This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. Listen, man, I got you. It's going to be your child. It's going to come from your body. You're going to make this happen. Whether you believe it or not, it's going to come from your body, and that person will be your heir. Ah, oh, I love the reminder here that God is saying that we can do it. I love the reminder here to all of you who are tired of trying that you can do it. I love the reminder here to all of us who feel like failures and feel like we can't do it in our own strength, in our own faith, in our own will, with our own willpower, God is saying, you can do it. It's going to come from your own body. And the Bible says in verse 5, and he took him outside and he said to him, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. God now moves into, into showing him again something very powerful that I want to be able to break down really quickly before we move on. He says in chapter 13, look at the dust. That's that's how many descendants I'm going to give to you. Now we're in chapter 15, and he says, look at the stars. Chapter 13, he says, look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, and look to the west. Now he says, look to the heavens. I love it because what God is saying is, progressively, I am revealing to you just how much more I have for you. Progressively, I'm allowing you to see that the plan that I have for you is incomprehensible, and so I have to reveal it to you at stages. 
The first stage in chapter 13 was you look to the north, look to the south, look to the east, and look to the west. Your, your, your land is that, and your descendants are as great as the dust. Now he says, now I'm going to give you something that you can't comprehend. Your logic won't allow you to. Your reason won't help. I want you to count, if you can, the stars in all of the heavens. Now, look, we live in Houston. You look up into the heavens, and you see three or four stars. You see the moon, and you see a plane that you think is a star, but it's not. It's a, it's a plane because we have a huge airport here. We don't get to see the beauty of God's creation and the abundance of stars. All you got to do is look up the James Webb Telescope. Look up the James Webb Telescope and you'll see just how many stars and galaxies there are in the heavens. And God tells Abram, look at that. At that point in history, there was no air pollution or light pollution. Oh, he could see the stars. Now, here is a man who's dealing with doubt. He's old, and he's afraid, and he doesn't believe that he could do it. And God says, look, man, your descendants are going to be as great as the innumerable galaxies. God is saying, even though you doubt, even though you don't feel like you could do it, I got so much in store for you. I got so much I want to do in you and through you. I got so much I want to have for you, and it's something that you can't even imagine. And I'm grateful for a God who meets us in our doubt, who meets us in our despair, who meets us in moments where we feel like we doubt him. And he says, even though all of that is true, I have more for you than you can even imagine. Look at the stars. I'm, I'm going to just give you a challenge every once in a while in your life, here's the challenge. Don't step outside because you won't see any stars. But every once in a while, just Google James Webb Telescope. Look at the stars and recall the promises of God, that they're greater than anything you could imagine, that they're bigger than anything you could ever think of, that those promises are attainable for you and for me. So shall your descendants be. Then, verse 6, here we go, then at that point, he believed in the Lord. Now, let me make sure you understand. Abram believed in God way back in chapter 12. I need you to get this. He believed God. God was a new God to him. He did not believe in that God in chapter 12. God shows up to him, and then Abram believes him for the first time, has faith in God. Now we move to chapter 15, and this one verse, by the way, is probably the central, most important theological verse in all of the Bible. No pressure. This verse is packed with theological truth. I'm not going to break it down because it's too much right now, but I'm just going to tell you that all of our theology is based on this one verse. The, the, the doctrine of justification by faith comes in this verse and this verse alone. It is the central passage for all of Abram's story. What happens here? Now let me break this down really quick. Abram believes God in chapter 12. He's saved. He's saved. Nothing changes at chapter 12. He believes in God. Chapter 15, he believes God again. What does this mean? In chapter 12, he believed in God. In chapter 15, he believed God. Think about that. 
In chapter 12, he believed in God. In chapter 15, he believed God. Because it's, it's harder to believe God and much easier to believe in God. We got a lot of people who believe in God. A lot of people who say we believe in God. I believe in God. But do you believe God and what he says about you, about his promises, about the security that he has for you, about eternity, about forgiveness, about wiping away my sins, about, about giving you second and third chance. It's much easier to believe in God than believe God. And here's Abram in chapter 15. He is believing God. And I want to challenge you today, those of you who believe in God, that maybe you believe in God, but you've stopped believing God. You never stop believing in God. There's nothing that can change the, the, the faithfulness that God has for you for believing in him. You are saved. But now we're talking about promises. Now we're talking about the things that he wants you to have. Now he's talking about the experience that he wants you to have here on this earth. And that is tied directly to your belief in him and what he says. Do you believe in God? Yes. Did you stop along the way? Believing him and what he says about you, about your future, about what's next. I, I'm just meant to be alone. Not meant to find happiness. I guess I'm just meant to live this way my whole life. I guess I'm just meant to live in this kind of struggle. I guess I'm the one that just has to have this hanging around my neck. When did you stop believing God? It's in that moment when you stop believing God that God is challenging us in our seats today. That moment where you stop, look at the stars. Stop not believing me and what I've said. I know what it's like. I believe in God all the time, but it's hard to believe God when he says I'm faithful I provide when the, when the rent is due, when the bills are coming up. It's hard to believe God that he is a provider. When you're lonely and you feel like you can't move on, it's hard to believe God that it's not meant for you to be alone. Abram believed God. He believed in the Lord and what he said, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. I, I can go to Romans chapter 4, Alex, and I can read how, how Paul says when, when, when Abram believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. I, I can go to James chapter 2, verse 23, where, where James, the brother of Jesus, is writing about Abram, and he says, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then in James, it says, and then he became, he was called the friend of God. I could go there, but I don't want to go there. It's a little too deep, but I will say this. I love this word. It's a scary word. It's a word I hate, credit. I hate it. I got bad credit. I don't got good credit. I don't have good credit. And the Bible is telling us here that the moment that Abram believed God, it was credited to him righteousness. Here's what I'll say, and I'll make it quick. 
credited to him as righteousness. Credited to him as righteousness. You need to understand it's credited to him, meaning he's got credit. From You ever seen these things say, we'll fix your credit. Come to us, all of you who are lowly and have bad credit. We will fix your credit. God is saying, Abram, I'm giving you credit. I'm giving you credit in righteousness. You know why I love this? Because righteousness means the act of being right in front of God. Oh, you don't see it. I'll tell you. It's amazing. It's the act of being right in front of God. It was credited to him. The moment he had faith, God credited him righteousness, meaning I am going to give you a credit of being right in my eyes, meaning the moments you fail, the moments when you fall off and you ain't right, I'm just going to pull from the credit to make sure you're right. Don't miss it. God is saying, the moment you believed that moment in that youth camp when you were 12, you believed, and the Bible says that you were credited righteousness. Credited righteousness, meaning no matter what you did afterwards, when you weren't right with God, God just went to the bank and he credited you righteousness. You are always righteous in God's eyes. No matter where you find yourself today, the good news is that you are righteous in God's eyes. This is the doctrine of justification by faith. We are justified. God promises us justification. Justification means to be declared righteous. That means declaring, meaning God says you are righteous. It doesn't mean God makes you righteous. The Bible does not tell us that God makes us righteous. He declares us righteous in the courtroom in heaven. So you and I, here's the hope that we have today. The moment that we believe in Jesus, we are accredited righteousness in our heavenly bank account. So every time you're in need, every time you're struggling, every time you feel like you don't have enough, call on your God for that credit. Call on your God for the credit that he has for you. Am I preaching? I'm trying to stay, okay, credited to him, right? It's much deeper than this. I'm not going to do it, but that's in Romans and James chapter. It is the central belief system that is built for the rest of the Bible on this one verse. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. Oh, I could jump and I could preach because what he's saying is, remember that I brought you out. And if I brought you out, it means I'm taking you somewhere. If I pulled you from the depths of death and despair and darkness, it means I got somewhere that I'm trying to take you. Every time you feel down, every time you feel like giving up, remember that I pulled you out because I'm putting you back into something even better. He's saying, I don't leave things halfway finished. He's saying, I don't just take you out and leave you there. I finish what I start. And here's the good news for you and me today. When God saves us eternally and forever gives us this righteous credit, he doesn't just leave us and say, all right, do whatever. No, he stays with us. And he says, now I'm here to help fulfill the promise that I have for you. And this promise is a promise that I will finish. God does not leave things undone. So if you're here today and you feel halfway through, almost undone, not complete. God says, if you don't feel complete, it's because I'm not done yet. I got things that I got to do. I got places that we're going to go. I got blessings that I'm going to hand you. And if you're here now and you're an unfinished product, that's okay. Because he's not done. He brought you out. Remind my, he brought me out of Greenspoint.
He brought me out of the trouble that I was in. So I'm going to trust him for where he's going to take me. I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Verse 8, he said, oh, this is great. We're almost done. He said, oh, Lord God, same Adonai, oh, God, my master. You would think that right now Abram would completely be uh, open to everything that God has for him, but Abram still has doubt. I love it because you do too. I just screamed, I'm sweating, and you still have doubt. You still are wondering, oh, that's great. I don't know. That's great. Still broke. Still lonely. Still struggling. He said, oh, Lord, I love it. How may I know? Give me some proof. To all of you who are doubting so much that you want God to give you a sign, that is what he is asking here. God, give me a sign. How may I know that I will possess it? Great. You're going to give me this promise? Great. You, you told me to come out of my house, my tent, to leave everything, all of my riches and all of my stuff to follow you to a land that you will show me. Great. Now you've told me in the chapters later you're going to give me descendants that you will show me later. Great. But now you're telling me you're going to give me a land and descendants and it's going to be innumerable and it's going to look like the stars. It's time to show me something. I love that God allows this. He says, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, this is God speaking. Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female gate and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Now, this sounds weird to all of you, but let me tell you what's happening. Abram right here, we don't see any hesitation from Abram because right here, Abram knows what's going down. Verse 10, then, all, then he brought all of these things to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite of each other, but he did not cut the birds. What is going on? This got weird. Sometimes the Bible gets weird, and you're like, what's going on? This is strange. This is when I just kind of fade away and don't understand what's happening. Let me tell you, this is a moment where a contract is about to be cut. Abram says, now, God, you got to show me something. And God says, okay, I'm about to cut a contract between me and you. Bring me, bring me three cows, three goats, three rams, three turtle doves, and three pigeons. Now, this sounds really strange because the way they did things back then is not how we do things now. When you sign contracts now, what do you do? You sign on a piece of paper. Put your name on a dotted line. You probably, if it's a big contract, you got to go and get a what? A what? A notary to make sure that you wrote it down. That because it's in court, they need to know that you actually signed this thing, that you put your name down. God is, is showing Abram that they're going to do a contract in the way that they would sign contracts back then. The way that they would sign contracts back then is really interesting. They would take the animals and they'd cut them in half. And then both people who are entering into this agreement would walk down the middle of it. And they would enter into a contract. 
I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to keep teaching. Is that okay? All right. Verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Now this, is, this wording goes all the way back to Genesis when, when God put Adam to sleep. I love it because what it's telling us here is that God is about to birth something for Abram the way he did for Adam when he gave him Eve. He put him into a deep sleep. It fell upon him, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Why is this in here? Because the presence of God is coming. God's presence is on his way. God is going to physically, physically manifest himself to Abram now. And he's going to do it in a, it's called a theophany, where God would show himself to man in a physical form. And so terror and darkness, because God is holy and good, and the world can't contain him, so it gets dark and it gets terrifying. That's the presence of God. It's coming to an unholy people. And God is coming, and he is seeing and feeling this fear and this, this darkness. And God then shows up, and he says this in verse 13. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Know for certain that they will be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. God is telling them the future. God is completely now revealing his plan, where God was just giving him little instructions and little instructions and little instructions. Now God has given him the full plan. He says, listen, you will certainly have this land. It's not going to be yours, though. It's going to be your descendants. Your descendants are going to take this land, and before they get it, they're going to be enslaved for 400 years. But don't worry, because even though they're enslaved, I'm going to bring them out, and they're going to come out with more possessions. God is telling him the future and telling them what's going to happen. Then he says, as for you, you shall go to your father's in peace. Let's get the band up here. You shall get, go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. I'm not going to get too far into that. I'm just going to tell you this. God is saying, listen, I'm going to tell you the plan. I'm going to tell you now. Here it is. You're going to die. You're not going to possess this land. But your descendants will. And they're going to be in slavery, and I'm going to pull them out. But you're going to die, and you're going to die at good old age. You're going to die happy. It's going to be good. But your descendants, they're going to be the one that possess this land. Verse 17, and it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Wait a minute. We're ending. You got to get this. We're done. Five minutes. This is the most important thing there is. The way that you would do a contract is that you would separate the pieces and then you would walk down the middle. I'm going to read this. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. We're going to go one by one. It says that in that moment, there came a smoking oven. 
The, the visual here is a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Two different things. A flaming oven and a flame. A flaming, a smoking oven, two, not one. A smoking oven and a flaming torch. The language here is, is language that's going to be used in the future at Mount Sinai. When God's presence came down on the top of Mount Sinai, this language about a smoking oven and, and, and furnaces being burned is what is being used to show the presence of God. And the torch is the presence of God. These two things are being illustrated as the presence of God. So the Bible is telling us that these things are, are, are future visualizations of what's to come. The pillar is the torch, meaning the pillar that leads the people out of Egypt, the fire by day, night, the, the cloud by day, that's what's showing itself here. The pillar that pulled people out of Egypt is showing up to Abram to remind him that he is this guide. And then a smoking oven. I don't know how else to say it other than this. My oven broke like two months ago. Just got on fire. And I've been without an oven for months. I got an air fryer though. Love my air fryer. But here's what I realized, it's hard to cook for a family with an air fryer. It, it was really difficult for me to cook for my, my large, I got five kids. It's hard to cook for, and I love to cook. I, I was limited by what I could cook because I didn't have an oven. Last week, my house church, this is why I need a house church. Members of my house church got me an oven, got my family an oven. Come on, put your hands together. They got us an oven. They got us an oven, installed it, got it ready, turned it on. My kids came out of the room the next day. What's that? That's an oven. What? Are you, are you saying that we can like cook a lot now? Yeah. That day, cooked a big meal because I had an oven. I love, I love that the illustration for God's purpose and his promise is an oven. I think what it's saying to us is God's cooking. I think what it's saying to us is you might have thought that I couldn't provide, but I got an oven and I'm cooking up something great and I'm cooking up something bigger than you can imagine and I'm cooking up something incredible. And you know what else this teaches us? You would use ovens to burn bricks. You would use an oven to burn a brick so that you could build something. I love this too, because it's telling us that this is the kind of God that's building something. And he's building something in your life. And the imagery here is the imagery he's giving us in this text. That God is cooking up something for your life. That God is in the kitchen and he's able and he's cooking up something beautiful and incredible in your life. And he's not only cooking for you, he's cooking for the kind of legacy and dynasty that he wants to do in you. It's greater than you can imagine. It's greater than you even believe. And then he needs to know he's building something. 
He's building something in you. He's building something in this church. He's building something in us. The Bible said that that's the imagery that showed up there to remind us that he's not done with us yet. You might feel like you're done and God has done all the work that he could in you. He's saying, I'm an oven. I still got bricks to make. You're not done yet. I still got bricks to make. I still got things I want to do for you. I still got places I want to build. I still got things I want to hand to you. You're not done yet. The Bible says that all of this came, and look, it says, and the flaming torch, and it passed between the pieces. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Wait a minute. It's really easy to, to lose this. What's amazing here is not just what Abram saw. What's amazing here is not just what God is communicating through the illustration. What's amazing here is who passed through the pieces. What's amazing is that this is showing us what God did. Who passed through the middle of the animals? God's presence did. Did Abram? No. Did Abram stand there and swear a promise and make an oath? No. We know by history that whenever a king would enter into a covenant relationship with someone who was lower than them, either both of them would cross through the middle or just the one who's lower. Just the servant. Never did the king by himself cross through. What God is saying through this symbolism is, I'm going through this for the both of us. What God is saying here is, I'm walking through these pieces alone. He didn't ask Abram to walk through it. He didn't direct him to walk through it. What God is telling us through this text is that, Abram, I'm the one responsible for the, for the, for the culmination of this covenant. What the kings and them would do is they would say as they passed through the, through the animals, they would sit there and say, may what happened to the animals happen to me if I don't fulfill my side of the promise. God is telling Abram what he's telling Abram is something so incredibly overwhelming he is saying this covenant is not up to you it's up to me this covenant Abram is completely up to me if I fail may I die if I fail in fulfilling my promises to you may I die what he's telling Abram is I will bless you even if it means I have to die that's what God is telling Abram. Even if it means that I have to die. And guess what? God did. Centuries later, darkness came down again. Mark chapter 15, verse 33. The Bible says around noon, darkness covered the land. Darkness again covered the land. And Jesus died. And the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53 that in that moment, Jesus was cut off 
using covenant language. Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. God died. He died not because he failed, but because we failed. What Abram is hearing from God in this text is God is saying, if I fail, I'll die. But if you fail, I'll die too. Even if you fail, Abram, I will die so that you would know that your promises are secure. So when the Bible tells us that only God passed, it's so that God would secure the promises that he has for you and for me. Even though we fail, even though we make mistakes, even though we don't live up to what God has for us, the Bible is telling us that God is saying, I will bless you even if I have to die and even if you fail. That's good news for all of us who fail. It's good news that his promises are tied to a promise that he is making, that he will go as far as he needs to go so that you can have the promise that he has for you. So that you can have the promise. Hebrews chapter 6, 13 through 19. Stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up, stand up. Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. It says, For when God made the promise to Abram, since he could not swear by anyone greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise for men swear by one that is greater than them I swear by this I swear by that he says and with them an oath is always given as a confirmation at the end here is God it's the end and he's swearing this to you and to me and he's giving us an oath and a promise in the same way that people do that God desiring even more to show to you the heirs of the promise that's you and me he wants to show us the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed by an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie we have taken refuge we have taken refuge and strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Here it is. He's saying here, the writer of Hebrews, what God promised you is sure. What God promised you is immovable and unbreakable. What God promised you is unbreakable because it's on God and God alone to perform it. What God has given you is great. What he has for you is even better. And it's something that even you and your failures cannot lose. It's an unmovable, unshakable hope. So here's my question for you. He says, in this moment, you need to grab a hold of it, he says. 
in verse 18. You grab a hold of this hope when things get dark, when times get hard, when you have doubt, when you fail, when you feel like you can't move forward, when you feel overwhelmed, when the anxiety settles in. He says you can hold on to his promises because his promises were made in a way that makes him ob obligated to give to you. Then he says it's a hope for your soul. What is your hope? What do you put your hope in? What is it that gives you confidence to live this life? Is it your job? Is it your money? Is it your beauty? Is it your talents? Is it your possessions? Is it your friends? Is it your family? Listen, no friend or family or money will be there for you eternally. Everything that you put your hope in outside of God eventually will fail you. Your job will fail you. People will fail you. Money will fail you. Sex will fail you. It will all fail you. But let me tell you something that does not fail. Let me tell you something that is secure and steadfast. Let me tell you something that was bought with a price, with the life of Jesus Christ. And it is the hope that God is giving us a promise and that he will fulfill those promises in our life. You have a hope in something that is secure, it's immovable, it is the anchor for your soul. And the only way you can have a real hope, a hope to get you through this, a hope to push you forward, a hope to get you through the dark times, is to look back at this problem, this promise that God made to Abram and remember who passed through those pieces and remember who swore to fulfill it even if it meant that he would have to die it was God it was not you it's not based on your ability it's not based on your resume it's not based on your victories or how good you are the promises that God wants you to hold on to today are bought for through Jesus Christ and through what God did for us you and I we have a hope that is secure come on we have a hope that is good. The only way that we can have a secure hope is to put our hope in things other than things, other than people, other than position, other than, other than plaques on the wall or trophies on our shelf, but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. It's a promise that he's made us. It's for you and for me. We can leave here today confident in that. Today, I think we just need to declare it in prayer that we accept it. We, we believe it. We trust God. We trust him in these moments where we have doubt, where we have fear. Right now, I just want to pray for you. If you have doubt, if you have fear, if you don't believe the promises that God has for you are going to be done because of the things that you've done in your life, and today you're realizing that it's not up to you, that it's completely up to God, that he put his life on the line and he paid the price for you just right now. Close your eyes. Heavenly Father, it's in these moments, Lord, that we realize just how great your promises are for us, just how much you have in store for us, just how much you want to do for us. And God, we're so thankful that you that you cross through those pieces, that you're the one who solidified this promise and this covenant with us. God, we thank you. God, we just ask that you would give us the faith to keep trusting you, the faith to not give up, the faith to be able to recall to our mind these truths whenever things get hard, whenever things get difficult, whenever we're struggling. God, in these moments, we want to believe and trust in you.
We need faith to get through our days. Remind us, God, that it's your power alone that gets us through this. God, you are our hope. You are our anchor. No matter how difficult things get, we're steadfast and secure in these truths and what you've done for us. Today, God, we declare it. We possess it. And we pursue it, the promises that you have. God, we're so thankful for Jesus and what he's done. We're thankful for you and what you've done by putting Jesus on the cross so that these promises could be secure. We love you, Jesus. We're thankful that you put your life on the line so that the promises would be, would be something that we could have in our lives. We thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, put your hands together. Guys, we love you. Hope that this is an encouraging series. I hope that you're getting encouraged by this.